take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be reading and reflecting on verses 5 through 11, Philippians chapter 2. As we gather this morning, I want you to know that I'm grateful to be back, but my heart is still far away this morning in Ukraine and all that is going on as the Russian military under the autocratic and demonic Vladimir Putin are seeking to bring dominion over the country of Ukraine. I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider giving a gift, a financial gift to help the hurting in Ukraine. You can do so by making a check to FBC Waynesboro and designating it Ukraine. Our international mission board, through our SEND relief agency, we actually have uh, people that are serving at all the borders of Ukraine that are providing refugee camps and other, uh, and as a part of that, providing food and water and housing and all kinds of things for the thousands upon thousands that are fleeing the country, particularly the capital city of Kiev. Sin Relief also has a prayer guide that we will be distributing this Wednesday night at our Wednesday night prayer gathering, and it will also be uh, available as a bulletin insert in next Sunday's bulletin. I have heard uh, finally, as of this morning, uh, from every person that I know in Ukraine, both American and Ukrainian, and there are lots of them that I've had the privilege of getting to know through the years and all of them are safe. Uh, most of them, the overwhelming majority, are out of the country and they're in other countries. You know that those men who are between the ages of 18 and 60 cannot leave Ukraine because if they have to be a part of the troops that are battling the Russians, then they will be enlisted into service. I finally heard from Sergei and Natasha. That's the couple that's been here. We've had lots of people here affiliated with Ukraine, and uh, Sergey and Natasha were here with us. A lot of you got to know them and love them and care for them, and I'm very grateful for that. He preached here in this pulpit, and they were the couple that I'd not heard from until early this morning, and I got a long email from them, and they're safe. They are with uh, Sergey's parents up in the Carpathian Mountains, and uh, they uh, what would normally take 10 hours for them to get there took four days and four nights for them to make that trip and be there with his parents. So continue to pray uh, for this country and the faithfulness of followers of Jesus there. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And unless Vladimir Putin repents and turns to Jesus, he will bow his knees before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and then will, by God's good justice, be condemned to hell forever. We do not want to see anybody condemned to hell, so we pray he comes to repentance and faith and all those who are alongside him. Now, Philippians chapter 2, if you're able to stand with your Bibles open, keep your Bibles open as we look at this marvelous passage together this morning, beginning in verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It's already yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters this morning in Ukraine. Uh, It has passed from the middle of the day into evening there, and evening is when it's so hard. And so we pray for your protection. We pray for your provision. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to do miraculous and marvelous things in the lives of Ukrainians and in the midst of this war. We pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would stop this evil and that you would stop the evil one in all of the things that he is seeking to do. We pray that you would give strength to your church, and during these days, your church would not diminish but shine as a bright light in the midst of the darkness that is there. And we pray for that same light to shine in this place today. And I pray as we sit down, we will look around and see that we're safe here and secure here, that uh, we have been given a beautiful place in which to gather. And yet you did not do all of this because we are special. We are not. You did this as a gift of your grace that we might recognize you as Lord and give ourselves away in service to those who most need our help in these days. So I pray that you would prompt and quicken our hearts and spirits to be generous in our giving and in our praying, that we would fast and pray during these seasons, during this season for our brothers and sisters and friends and family in that faraway land that is not far for some of us who've been there and have seen what you're doing and have met people that have become very quickly, brothers and sisters to us. Bless them, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, what the choir just sang is a modern rendition of what is written in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 and continuing through verse 11, is one of the oldest hymns that has ever been sung in the Christian church. This, these words were actually sung by Christians in the first century. This is not the only hymn that we find in the New Testament. You and I know that the whole book of Psalms uh, constituted the hymnal for the people of God. Both the Jewish people, when they gathered in their synagogues and in their temple services, and the Christian church as they gathered in the various places in which they would gather in those early years would sing the Psalms. But by God's grace, God raised up people like Paul and others who would write music. They would write hymns. 
Do you know that in the uh, 17th century through the early 20th century, uh, many of the hymn writers were pastors? Pastor was not only preaching the word of God and caring for people, uh, they were also the theologians of the church who helped the church understand what she was to believe doctrinally, but they engaged in writing many of the songs that the church was singing. The Apostle Paul would lead the way. This is a very powerful hymn that we will be examining this morning, and yet examining is really not appropriate because one doesn't examine poetry. One listens to poetry. One soaks in poetry. One learns from poetry. One listens to it and learns from it as we bathe in the beauty and majesty of the poem. And this is what we have before us in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. It is strategically placed in Philippians because it is the heart and soul of what is the central section of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, The heart of what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi begins in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, We looked at verses 27 through 30 several weeks ago, and what we saw there is Paul teaching us how we are to live with the joy of Jesus in the midst of a pagan world. Then a couple of weeks back, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says, this is how you're to live with joy in relationship to one another in the church. And this whole section concludes with verses 12 through 18 that we will examine next week, where Paul shows us why this matters. Why does it matter how you live your life before the world? How do... Why does it matter how you live your life in the church? And Paul is going to answer that question. But here is is the ultimate question. Uh, Can we do it? Uh, Can we live the way that God has called us and commanded us to live? Paul does not answer that logically and rationally. And reasonably, Paul gives us music. He gives us a song. And this song is introduced to us in verse 5. We have the introduction to the song. And then verses 6 through 11, we have the song. And the answer to the question, whether we can live it or not, is no, not in our own strength. And by our own efforts, in terms of our own energy, and by way of our own decisions. You don't just get up and say, I think today I will live this way. No. You live it only by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that's present in the heart and life of every believer. What's at stake in living the way that God has called us to live is the integrity of the truth of the Holy Spirit living in the life of every believer. Does he or doesn't he? If he doesn't, then we cannot live the way God has called us to live. But if he does, then he is the one who is empowering and enabling us to live this way. Now, before we get into this text this morning, you need to know that throughout the history of the church, from about the 4th century until now, 
people have debated what is the point of this text. What is this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what is it really all about? Uh, What does it represent for us? And not to oversimplify the debate and not to make light of the debate, it comes down to two alternatives. Number one, there are people who have read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and they have said that this is what this hymn is all about. It sets Jesus before us as our example. He is our model. And we are simply to try to follow him. We are to live like he lived. We are to be as he was. We are to do as he did. How many of you remember the bracelets WWJD? Now, I had one. I wore one until I realized that what is behind or what was behind that movement was the assumption that this passage and others like it were about Jesus just being our example, that we are to just be good, morally decent, do the right thing kind of people, and every human can be that kind of person, so we set Jesus before us as our example And we try to be like him. Now, if that's the way you approach this text, how many hours tomorrow will you live and be faithful to that? (laughs) You can wear that bracelet all you want to. I've got one hanging on my book bag right now. But it doesn't work because at our core, we're not able by our own power and by way of our own strength to live that way. And yet... And yet, 1 John, if you want to turn there, 1 John 2, verse 6, we find these words. 1 John 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, that is, abides in Jesus, ought The word ought means this is from God. This is mandated by God. If we belong to God, this is what will happen. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, that's one way of looking at what is here. Another way is that this passage is primarily about our relationship with Jesus. That this is what God has done for us in Jesus. It's laid out here for us. This hymn takes us all the way from eternity. The pre-existence of Jesus takes us all the way from before he entered time until the absolute end of time when he comes to bring judgment to the world. It covers everything from before time to the end of time, and the focal point is what he has done so that we're enabled and empowered to have a real life-changing relationship with him. In other words, this passage is not primarily about us wearing a bracelet, WWJD, and seeking to follow him as an example. It is about us entering into a real relationship with him 
where we bow before him as Lord and we seek to follow him and be faithful to him. You have no idea how many books have been written through the history of the church seeking to figure out what this passage is really about. But but what if? What if it's about neither of those things? What if it's about both of them? What if it's really about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Think about this. That when it's real, it transforms your life completely. And it enables you to have a daily desire to be more and more like Jesus. In the awareness that when you fail, it is never fatal. Because Jesus is the one who purchased you for God and provides for you the riches of his grace and mercy. So that also in 1 John we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if this passage is compelling us to come into this wonderfully life-changing relationship with God through Jesus Christ so that the outcome is we want to follow Jesus more than anything else in the world. We treasure him. We love him. We bow before him. We want to be like him. We want to represent him in the world So that what this passage is about is how that happens. How do we we enter into this relationship with God that so radically changes us that it gives us at the core of everything we are this commitment to be like Jesus? Paul introduces the hymn. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is, this is the introduction, but it summarizes for us what this hymn is really all about. You know, we... We sing all kinds of music here in this church, and we sing lots of hymns for which I'm very grateful to God. And when we're singing hymns, I wonder sometimes if when we're singing certain hymns, how many of us really know the history of those hymns? Because when you know the history of a hymn, it somehow takes on deeper meaning. One of my favorite hymns is, It Is Well With My Soul. You know, God has used that song in mine and Anne's life on multiple occasions. When, when we have needed comfort and strength and grace from God, somewhere along the way during a day, we will hear that song. And to know that it was written by a man who had experienced the loss of his children at sea, and when he came to that place where they had died, God moved in his heart to write the words that became The song, it is well, it is well 
with my soul. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, not which you can have, not which you can achieve. Paul is saying it's already yours. Have this mind in the original language is one word. It is written by Paul in the imperative mood. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Have this mind. The word is used 26 times in the New Testament, 23 by the Apostle Paul, 10 of those right here in Philippians. It is an extremely critical word for understanding what Paul is seeking to communicate to the believers in Philippi and subsequently to us who are reading and reflecting on this passage today. Looking at and examining this word prompted three questions. What does it mean, this word, have this mind? Where is this meaning found? Where is it located? And what is the source of this meaning? Three questions. Number one, what is the meaning of this phrase, one word, have this mind? Hawthorne, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Philippians, has helped me understand the meaning of this term. And I quote him here. To have this mind means to ask for a total inward attitude of mind or disposition or outlook that strives after one thing which is far greater than any any human could ever conceive or achieve on our own. In fact, as we will see as we move along, It is a call and command for us to be and become truly human, fully human. Everything that God means in his word about being human. Where is it found? Have this mind among yourselves. Now, this phrase, among yourselves, can actually be translated one of two ways. I think both of them are right. It can mean, have this mind in you, personally. Everett, have this mind in you. Doug, have this mind in you. Joyce, have this mind in you. This is your mind, the way you think, the way you approach life, the way you assess life, the way... You move about in the world in which you live. Have this mind. It's the mind of Christ. And Paul says it's already yours. Why is it ours? Because we're believers. Because we have repented of our sin and we have turned to Jesus alone to save us. And we have bowed beneath his lordship and we are honoring him and worshiping him as Lord. We are giving our lives to him, but it also means among yourselves. Because what is a church? Here is a church. A church is made up of a man and a woman, men and women, boys and girls, students who have surrendered their lives to Jesus as Lord, and thus they've been given the mind of Christ. They come together to worship God, to witness for the gospel, to do the work of God, and they are not concerned about what they think 
They're not concerned about their mind because they want to operate, desire to operate by the power of the Holy Spirit out of the mind of Christ that is in them. They have one question. What does Christ think? So how do you know that? You turn to the Bible. You pour your life into the Bible. You listen to the Bible. You learn the Bible because here is the mind of Christ. That's a church. So why are so many churches in this day confused and chaotic and corrupt? Because we have too many people admitted into membership who don't have the mind of Christ bring their way into the church fellowship so that the church fellowship is distorted and disturbed because the collective is not thinking with the mind of Christ. So where does the mind of Christ come from? Have this mind in you and among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I've said this many times, but it's just true. Paul's favorite phrase for describing a Christian is a Christian is someone who is in Christ Jesus. Paul, how would you define a Christian? Well, somebody who accepted Jesus. He didn't use that language. It's somebody who would ask Jesus into their heart. He didn't use that language. His language was, a Christian is someone who is living in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means a Christian is someone who's absolutely committed, surrendered, submitted to Jesus as Lord. So much so that day by day we are communing with him. We're in communion with him. He is our conversation partner as we walk through our day. He is sweet to us. He's precious to us. We not just know his presence intellectually. We feel it intimately. We know he's there and we talk with him and we walk with him and we share life with him every day and we desire to be with other believers who have the same kind of commitment to Jesus that we have. Have this mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is not a duty for us. It's a delight. It's not an obligation. It is our deepest satisfaction. It's, it's not what we have to do. It's what we love doing. We look forward. Believers look forward to the Lord's day because we get to worship God and we get to come together with other believers, our brothers and sisters, and we get to praise God together. That is not something we think about like we think about going to work on Monday. It is something we think about as our greatest delight and joy. The only day of the week that we get to do that corporately, morning and evening with other believers, and we look forward to it and long for it. And that mind is ours only because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So Paul gives us this song to Jesus. He begins with the pre-existence of Jesus, though he was in the form of God. The word form doesn't mean outward appearance here. It means essence. Who is Jesus? He is the essence of God. Who is Jesus? He is God. Who is Jesus? 
He is fully God. Who is Jesus? He is truly God. Who is Jesus? He is the God-man. One God and three persons. Jesus is the essence of God come to earth. From heaven all the way to earth. But he did not. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's God. But he never exploited his equality with God to disrupt the purpose of God in his life. He's in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil. It had been 40 days since he had food. Satan says, turn these stones into bread. Now, had that been you and me, we would have said, turn it into bread. We'll make it into 10,000 Pineland bakeries. We'll show you. No. He did not exploit. His equality with God. In the garden, when he's praying in agony, his sweat becoming as if it were drops of blood pouring from his body, if there's any other way. On the way to the cross, as he's bearing that cross beam, having been scourged, having been beaten, he did not exploit his equality with God. On the cross as he cried out, my God, my God. He was fully God. But he never, ever exploited his equality with God. So what did he do? Verse 7. Here is the center of this hymn. This is what he did. He did two things. And these two things are defined for us so that we know what they look like in him and we will know what they look like in us when we are increasingly possessed by the mind of Jesus. He emptied himself, verse 7. Verse 8, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He emptied himself by becoming a servant. The word is not servant. That's nice. The word is slave. He became a slave. Owned by you? No. Owned by God? He was God's slave to do God's will, to purchase a people for God, sinners that are rotten and ruined before God, that Jesus is going to come and redeem for God. His life was 
expressed in fulfilling the desires of his one and only master. So the Bible says that he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, a slave, and he was born in the likeness of men. You know what that means? He became, he was fully human. What does it mean for you and I to be fully human? You know, we have, I've messed this one up. I'm just a sinner. I'm just human. Don't ruin human by those words. I'm just a sinner. To be human is to be made in the image of God to reflect the character and glory of God, which we cannot do because we are sinners, which has robbed us of what it means to be truly human. When do you become truly human? When you yield your life to the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're redeemed by him so that you sit before Jesus, bow before Jesus, and you say sincerely and seriously in submission, I'm owned by only one master and his name is Jesus, that's to be truly human. And my whole existence is to serve him, to love him, to worship him, to honor him. I care nothing about my will or my way or my wants or my wishes or my desires or my ambitions or my dreams. They're dead. I just want to praise him. He not only emptied himself, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by being obedient. Obedient all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. That's where we go when we belong to Jesus. We go all the way to the cross. When we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. When we see what he did there for us, we count everything as loss. Because not only has he died for us, we have died with him. Tony Morita, who he spent many time, many years, many months in Ukraine teaching at the seminary where I taught, good friend and brother. Tony Morita says we need to see the cross from five perspectives. From the perspective of God, it is God sending his son to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. From the perspective of Jesus, it is him offering himself as a substitute for us as sinners. From the perspective of Satan, it's his eternal and everlasting defeat. From the perspective of our sin, our sin is removed in terms of its punishment and power. We are freed from the power and punishment of sin by the cross. From our perspective, we are redeemed. We are reconciled to God. We are adopted into the family of God. We are brought into union with Christ. Charles Spurgeon says that when you and I look at what the cross means for us in terms of our dying with Jesus, there are five things that we should note that should humble us. Number one, we stake our lives on the cross. We belong to him and we live beneath his cross. Number two, we hate sin. We hate sin generally, but we hate our sin in particular. Oh, child of God, to be a child of God means you do not indulge your sin. It doesn't mean you don't sin, but you don't indulge it. 
You don't play with it. You're playing with fire that will ruin your soul. You know, one of the things I'm learning about flying in our day, particularly the nature of our culture, I don't watch movies on planes. You know why I don't watch movies on planes? Because none of them are worth watching. Well, who's looking? Well, Jerry was sitting across from me, so that bothered me a little bit. But who who's cares who's looking? God is. We hate sin. We deny ourselves. Life is not about us. We despise all human glory. Oh, what would happen in the church if we could get over this of, I'm going to do something in the church and somebody better recognize me for it. Oh, child of God, you don't need recognition for anything. You need to lay down your life before God so that you give praise and glory and majesty and honor to God. We are unworthy. He alone is worthy. We live, Spurgeon said, to honor Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. It's what it means to bow before him as Lord. And we do that now because one day we will. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is who? Lord. That word Lord is the word for God. Jesus Christ is God. One day, everybody in this room, everybody in the whole universe, every is going to bow before the feet of Jesus. And we're going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. One of the big differences between believers and unbelievers is that we as believers are saying that every day. Every day. Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm nothing. He's everything. My life is consumed by him, compelled by him, controlled by him. Nothing else matters but him. Is that what you're saying every day? It's what we remember when you take the bread and the cup that we will do in just a few moments. We're remembering what he did for us. How precious he is to us. Can I say to you at the end that if he is Lord and we will one day bow before him as Lord and confess that he is Lord, we should... We should do that now. And the result will be that we will live under his lordship. We will live 
as a part of his church, we can't help it. And we will live to declare the gospel to others. That's how you live. That's how you live. That's how I live. It's how you live as a believer if Jesus is Lord. You live in devotion to him. You live in connection with other believers in a local church. And you live to declare his name to others wherever you go. Why do you do that? Because of what he's done for you. You remember that on that night that he was arrested and betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he gave the bread to his disciples so you can get out your little piece of bread here. And he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Then after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. We take this cup in remembrance of all that Jesus has done for us. The church covenant is going to come up on the screen and we want to remember what we have committed to covenant together as a church family. It's always a joy to read this in worship. You don't get the privilege I get. I get to hear you. All you get to hear is me. So let's read it together. Having been led by the Spirit of God to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, Having entered into the fellowship of his church, the church prayerfully and joyfully makes this covenant with one another and with him. In order to love God and worship him as the church reaches and disciples others for Christ, the church pledges with his help. Believing that the Bible is the authoritative, infallible word of God and recognizing Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the church further proposes... We further pledge to maintain the spirit of this covenant wherever we go. There are probably one, there's probably one person in this congregation that knows the importance of this day for me, for us. 
50 years ago on this very day, February the 27th, 1972, I was ordained to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I was sitting on the front row at Lincoln Baptist Church. Anne was there that day. She already knew that we were going to get married. Some of you know that I told her that on our first date. She lived in shock for a little bit and figured out that I don't give up. Nana was there that night in Lincoln Baptist Church. Those were different days. They would not let Ann sit with me on the front, even though we were boyfriend, girlfriend. We were not yet engaged. We'd been dating for four years at that point. But that was just, we weren't yet husband and wife, so she had to be a member of the congregation. That night, uh, during those days, ordinations included three sermons. There was a charge to the church that uh, my mentor, Ficklin Guin, gave. There was a charge to me that my good friend, Benny Pate, gave. And then there was an ordination sermon that my pastor, Robert C. Daniel, who grew up in Rosier in Burke County, gave. I memorized that sermon. It's still in my mind. I preached it. I preach it wherever I go as the first sermon I preach in every church I've served. I haven't preached it in 30 years, <laughs> but I did preach it several times when I went uh, to different churches. That night uh, was a very special night that began a journey for me. 48 Sundays average for 50 plus years, I've had the privilege morning and night of preaching the gospel of Jesus. There's more passion in my soul today to preach the gospel of Jesus than there was then. That's how powerful the gospel is, the word of God is. It's like a fire in my bones. I preached last Sunday at Moravia Christian Fellowship, three sermons. The guy that we were with, Rich Reeves, said, are you all right preaching three sermons? I said, why not make it six? It's the Lord's day. We can preach all day. So I ask that we sing today at the end, that night in that church. The church was full. I think mostly people wondering if I really was going to be a preacher. They couldn't believe it. We sang that night at the beginning, all hail the power of Jesus' name. It is a modern version of Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Isn't God good that he allowed me to preach this text this day when we could sing at the end without it being inappropriate to the order of the service. So if you need a hymnal, it's number 202. And we're going to stand together. Now, Gene, you know why I want to sing all the stanzas of 202. Because really, 50 plus years of ministry is not about the preacher who preaches. It is about the God who calls, the spirit who equips, and the Jesus, I pray, is exalted Every time I stand to preach and teach the Word of God. So stand and let's sing that together. Mm -hmm. 